from Relay FM. This is Upgrade, episode 147. Today's show is brought to you by Encapsula, Smile, and Jamf Now. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined by Mr. Jason Snell. Hey, Mike, how's it going? Good, Mr. Jason Snell. How are you? I am just fine. I'm keeping cool. Keeping cool, man. We'll talk about why in a moment because, Jason. <laughs> We have our hashtag Snell Talk question, and it comes from John this week. Can't talk about the weather. Not enough time to talk about the weather, Mike. There's never enough time. John would like to know, if Siri on your iPhone had to take the personality of a fictional character, who or what would you like it to be? This is a a tough one. I thought about many great butlers. I thought about Mm -hmm. maybe Alfred from Batman. That might be a good one. Oh, you could call you Master Snell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, master, it would be Master Jason. Master Jason. Oh yes, yeah. Yes, yes, Master Bruce. Uh, but I'm gonna say Max Headroom. Why not? He's a digital personality, and I love him. And he would be. Uh, that would be hilarious to have Max Headroom do my bidding for me. I uh, John wasn't asking me, but um, if he was, <laughs> no, uh, I would maybe go with uh, Jarvis. I am as Jarvis. I just like the whole the whole voice. You know, I can't remember who's the actor's name who plays Jarvis. He was a British actor who was in a Wimbledon movie. Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany, that's it. Um, yeah, I, I think he's got a good uh, assistant voice. I like the Jarvis voice. But uh, All right. Do you ever think that Apple would do this one day, like that they may do voices? I, I don't think Google does it either. I feel like it's unlikely, considering now, these days, how much brand stock there is around these characters that these companies create. It's just, I mean, I think the goal now is to get the voice to sound as natural as possible, and that requires somebody to record, like, every possible breath and sound combination in the language that it's being used for, and that's really hard. I mean, I know that GPSs have done it, but the GPS vocabulary required is a lot less, and then they kind of punt when it comes... Like, the Homer Simpson voice in the GPS doesn't tell you the name of the street, I think. It just says, turn left at this street, right? Uh, Because it doesn't... Mm -hmm. They can't do it, so... I do think this is inevitable, though, that this will happen. Somebody will, th- this stuff will advance to the point where they'll be able to take probably existing recordings of people's voices and do magical things with them and chop them up and turn them into this, like to make any voice speak any text. Mm-hmm. And then when that happens, then it'll be on all of these assistants, too. But I think we're a long way off from that. So, I, do you know what? I, I was thinking to myself that they that Siri wasn't still a human, but I guess it has to be, right? Like, I was wondering, like, oh, have yeah. they created some kind of technology now to to just guess these things? But I guess it's a, a, mis, a mismatch of, like, somebody records a bunch of stuff and then a computer can see it all together, but there still needs to be the person at the beginning. Yeah, I think so. Because the new Siri voices, they, they sound like new people, right? They don't sound like refreshed yes. versions of the old voices. Definitely. So it's very they are, They're new people. Some super weird follow-up today. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Lantner has left Tesla. Yes. Now, this is a big surprise. He kind of just announced on, t- uh, on Twitter, turns out Tesla isn't a good fit for me at all. I'm interested to hear about other roles as for a seasoned engineering leader. There is also this, this funny thing to me in which Chris Lantner is somehow trying to find work on Twitter. Like, I feel like someone of his caliber could... I don't know. Like I figured that like he just has people he could call. That was really weird Probably. to me. Uh, that he and and that he not only this he has a resume which is online. Yeah, it's very old school. Like all of this is yeah. It's just, which is very strange to me that again like Chris Latner would need to have a resume. 
Yeah, and that he he details on on in his resume, he uses that as the way to detail sort of like what happened at Tesla, which is also weird. Yeah, well, okay, so the, it did. Weird and passive aggressive. No, it, it still has some of it there, but it's uh, what what an idea. Like you work somewhere for less than 6 months and what you do is you update your resume to say, "I worked here for less than 6 months. Here's everything we accomplished." And then the part that got deleted is at the end. Which was, in the end, Elon and I agreed that he and I did not work well together and that I should leave, so I did. That's what That was what his resume said for a little while, but it's gone now, right? Like, I think that was that, because it circled around the internet a lot, yeah. and he probably got a call from a lawyer, and then <laughs> had to take it down. Uh-huh. This is so weird to me. Like, you think about what it must take to get somebody like him to leave Apple. And and then it's all undone again. And I understand that it can be difficult for some people to work in some cultures. Or, of course, there can be interpersonal relationships that can be tricky. But for it to break down in six months, you'd figure that they might have had an, at least had an idea about this before they hired the guy. I assume him and Elon spoke. Sometimes I think you can't... I, I mean, we talk a lot... I think as as people who are dealing with employment, there's a lot of discussion about how do you find somebody, how do you interview somebody, how do you how are you sure how, how if you're coming into an organization, what's the corporate culture like? But I think the truth is that it's always a huge leap of faith. Uh, that right, that it's just like all right, let's give it a try. This sure sounds good, and it, probably there are. Inevitably, I think there are going to be things you discover that are terrible <laughs> that you that you didn't know because they didn't want to tell you, and uh, you'll figure it out and you adapt and you figure out like okay, this is a place I can work, and but you know some percentage of that time it's going to not be. I, I do think that that's the truth. I think that all the due diligence in the world won't change the fact that maybe when you are all the way in it and you're working and the you know charismatic billionaire founder who still operates the company is also there and it turns out that just when when the uh when the rubber meets the road to use a, a car metaphor uh it doesn't work it just uh, it doesn't work mm-hmm. in that in that environment of the doing the real work and that seems to be what happened here is yep. that you know Chris Latler, Latner had his ideas about how it should work and Elon Musk had his ideas about how it should work. And in the end, who wins that? It's going to be the guy who owns the company. Yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, they're not going to be like, Chris, you're really good. Uh, I'm off. Like, and then, you know, Elon leaves because he thinks Chris Lantners were great. Like, well, I, yeah, you know, I get it. The other way to do it is to say, I hired you because you're really good. And we needed somebody to manage our software team for our, for autopilot. And even though... It's not the way I would do it. You have, you know, I, I'm satisfied that you have us on a good path here, and so I'm going to let you do your job. But obviously, Elon Musk feels like, and and you know, there are lots of extenuating circumstances. Maybe it was a bit. Ba- maybe Latner was a bad fit for the team. Maybe the things that Latner talks about being proud of doing at Tesla were things that the people at Tesla were unhappy about. Maybe they. You know, the fixing of autopilot did some things that uh, frustrated the people who've been at Tesla a while, or maybe they were asked to provide more. Maybe the reason that it was so messed up to to uh, Latner's mind when he came in was because they were always being pressured by people like Elon Musk to do more, more quickly. 
and Latner was trying to fix the the mess that that created. And you know, I could totally see that coming up with uh, clashing with Musk the next time he he again asks for something kind of impossible and impossibly quickly, and Latner says, "No, we've got to do it the right way." And I mean. I don't know. There are lots of different w- explanations for for what went on here. Yep. But um, when you've got that that charismatic, opinionated, actively managing a company owner of the company um, who's probably used to asking for the moon, I mean, we we know we cover this on liftoff all the time that Musk is a guy who um, who has this horrible habit. He's a very impressive person, and I really appreciate what he's done with Tesla and SpaceX. But despite that, I will say he has this pr- this problem with um, over-promising and under-delivering. He hypes his stuff. Uh, he says it's happening too soon, and then it's never the case. The, the real time frame is never what he says it's going to be. And this is publicly, right? Like, he tweets this yes. stuff. Yeah, we're going to go to Mars in 18 months. We're going to ship the Tesla Model 3 in a year and a half. We're going to... And, and they're invariably late because he's overpromised and it's not like they aren't doing it and that they 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 have been very successful but he talks a lot and i would imagine that can be corrosive on the people who work for him because he's probably those unrealistic schedules are are probably um they're being pushed about why they don't meet them or they're being being or worse i think in some ways they're being pushed to meet schedules that everybody knows aren't realistic. So they're doing all this work to try to get something done that is not actually going to be done by the time that everybody's acting like it's going to be done. So, I mean, that's, I, I never really thought about it this way, but um, because I've been thinking of like Tesla and Elon and, and SpaceX and Elon Musk's pronouncements from the outside, but from the inside, I don't know, that, that could potentially be a really bad thing for the people who work for him. I don't know. Whatever it is, there is an incredibly talented software engineer out in the world now, roaming the wilderness. Uh, and as as yes. as much as we've made fun, like the guy is incredible. And uh, I don't expect that you listen to this show, Chris Latner. But if you do, good luck to you. Um, I'm sure yes. that you'll land where literally wherever you want to because you can, <laughs> right? Wherever you want to go, yeah. man, just go there. Also, sure I mean, as somebody who who made the decision to leave Apple. Right where he was probably quite comfortable. Uh, my guess, I mean, maybe there was something going on there, but my guess is that it was probably more that he thought that he wanted another challenge and he wanted to do something new. Um, if that's the case, and then he goes to Tesla and there's six months and then he's out of there, I do wonder if if uh, maybe he would be better off taking, you know, take take a year, do some more woodworking because <laughs> I know that's his hobby and. Um, you know, and think about what he really wants his next thing to be, rather than jumping into something else. Because this is two two ma- sort of major career uh, moments in a very short time for him. I, I do my armchair armchair advice would probably be: don't rush into anything else um, if you if you don't have to. And I kind of assume he doesn't have to. And uh, maybe maybe sit back and and recharge a little bit because mm-hmm. he obviously went straight from Apple into Tesla. And you know, we know he likes to do podcasts. So in the intervening time. Chris, if you'd like to start a show, uh, just send me an email, uh, Mike at Relay.fm. Uh, we can help. We can help with that. Uh, Jason, you're recording on an iPad today, uh, in a way. You know, in fact, my iPad is not involved at all right at the moment. Uh, although it probably will be before all is said and done. Um, see, I'm in Arizona visiting my mom, picking up my daughter from her summer camp. Hottest place in the world, is my understanding. <laughs> It's been about 115 degrees Fahrenheit every day. Mm-hmm. Gets down to, 
the low temperatures in the morning here are hotter than it has been at home the entire time well. <laughs> since I've been here. So, yeah, it's the face of the sun, basically. We're on the face of the sun. <laughs> oh, so good. I came down here. And I didn't want to bring um, I didn't want to bring a laptop. I just wanted to bring my iPad. And so I have a bunch of different methods of trying to record podcasts and edit podcasts using my iPad. For this one, what I did was I brought my my little Zoom recorder down. So I'm recording this microphone on the Zoom recorder. You're hearing me through on Skype as we talk through my headset microphone, which is attached. We're talking over my iPhone actually on Skype. And um, I had a setup that didn't work because I think I have an unshielded uh, charging adapter that was making horrible noise that wasn't there when I tested with regular power adapters at home. I was going to try to route my um, my microphone back to you over Skype so you would hear the same microphone that I'm using for the episode just to make it sound better for you. But that didn't work because of the, the power shielding problems. So I'm still toying with this. The dream, of course is to record my end, have you hear my good microphone, and for me to be able to get that recording um, all happening simultaneously. And I haven't quite gotten there yet, but it's uh, it's in the ballpark. We were hoping today that we'd come to the show with a solution, you know, for the for the round-trip iOS thing. But what happened instead is Jason got on the phone and it sounded like there were, I don't know, like just... A, Tons of tiny animals screaming at us. Little, little electrical monsters. Yeah. Yeah. It was bad. The, um, yeah. Yeah. The unshielded. Uh, so I, the, the work proceeds. I, I have another. I, what I didn't do is I brought, because I recorded another podcast while I was down here, and, and um, I wanted to bring two of my um, matched and better microphones down. But the other thing I could have done is brought the Audio-Technica microphone down, and that's the one that would let me plug in. I plug it into my iPhone or my iPad via USB and also record on the Zoom recorder because it also has a, an analog, an XLR connector. And in hindsight, that's probably what I should have done. And if I wasn't recording that other podcast while I was down here, I would probably have done that, is just bring the Audio-Technica down. That was the original idea. But I decided to get a little more uh, ambitious, and that didn't work. So we were reverting back to, actually, we recorded one episode of upgrade i think in this exact setup that i'm doing now and it worked fine it sounded fine the the work marches on jason you're leading the way yes the dream continues it's still unfulfilled one day mike one day today's show is brought to you in part by jamf now you can manage your apple devices from anywhere with jamf now when you first start your business it's pretty easy to keep track of your own computer and your own phone, right? You know where they are. They're with you all the time. But as you start to grow and you start to buy more technology for people that are working with you and for you, it gets harder to keep track of everybody's Macs, their iPhones, and their iPads. Then, heaven forbid, you have to try and figure out how to secure that iPad so that your sales rep can be fine when they're out on the road and that the one that they maybe just lost a week ago doesn't end up with data everywhere. That is stuff you don't want to have to think about. But that stuff can be super tricky unless you use Jamf Now because Jamf Now makes all of this and a whole lot more so much easier. You'll be able to configure settings, protect sensitive information, even log or wipe a device from absolutely anywhere. Jamf Now secures all your stuff so you can focus on your business and what your business is doing instead of having to do a ton of IT support. You don't need any IT expertise at all to be able to use Jamf now. It's super easy and super intuitive. You can find out more and create your free account today at jamf.com slash upgrade. That's J-A-M-F dot com 
slash upgrade. Once again, that's jamf.com slash upgrade. And because you listen to this show, you'll be able to start securing your business immediately by registering your first three devices for free. And you can add more for just $2 a month per device. Super affordable, super easy. And look, with three, three devices for free, why don't you go check it out right now at jamf.com slash upgrade. Go and create your free account today. Thank you so much to Jamf now for their support of this show. So the outline, somewhat ironically, published a big piece <laughs> this week detailing a presentation about Apple's security practices. So there was this this big presentation that Apple put on, and it looks like they are doing this for many employees. I assume that this is like a multi-day thing where they're bringing people in, and everybody I expect is supposed to see this presentation. It's titled Stopping Leakers, Keeping Confidential at Apple. Uh, the presentation was conducted by three members of Apple's global security team. Can we just take a second to focus on the really weird, like really weird and I think somewhat uncomfortable irony of this? You have a leak, leaking, leaks about leaks, basically. Leaks of leaks, telling you not to leak, it leaked. I I was thinking, like, put myself in the mind of the person who did this. I, that That's exactly what I think somebody did was say probably that they were kind of offended that they're asked to go through this secrecy thing. And so yep. they're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to leak show the secrecy them. thing. I'm not going <laughs> to leak any real secrets, but I'm going to leak their, their secrecy presentation. Because I, I remember that from, you know, times as a manager and before I was a manager that we would have company things that were mandated and people would be like – you know, really cynical and unhappy, and and why are they making us do this? And um, I get that. I like I I know that attitude. I recognize that attitude. I can imagine somebody like that um, doing this. Absolutely. So they they, in fact, I, it may be a little protest. I would imagine by somebody who says who's thinking that Apple employees need to not be treated like uh, suspects mm-hmm. by their own company. We'll come back to that point a little later on. But can you imagine being one of the people giving this presentation to see it <laughs> detailed on the web? Can you imagine like, the fury that you would have at that point? I don't even know if it could be measured. Like, it sounds like they actually recorded it. That they like, there's an audio recording that they had of the whole presentation, which is it's like a bootleg, <laughs> even more bizarre. Also, the, the the goal of the person that does this, like the person that leaks this. You are really playing with fire at this point. Like, this may actually, you know, from the people that are making the decisions, this may get you in more trouble than if you leaked an iPhone part. Just this is so, so far into the rabbit hole of stuff that Apple does not like to get out in the world. This is an act of, of employee defiance. Yeah. Yep. I would say. As opposed to, like, leaking info is not an act of employee defiance, I would say. I think it's usually an act. I'm talking about people who are sort of like Apple employees in Cupertino, not talking about people who are uh, factory workers mm-hmm. in the supply chain. But in, in, in Cupertino, I think le- leaking, we talked about, like, what are the motivators for leaking stuff? Um, and I think sometimes it is an act of rebellion against a decision you feel that was made in error. And you want to get a furor of, uh, you know, I can't believe they're removing the headphone jack. Let's get it out there. There will be a protest and they'll ignore it. <laughs> um, 
And then a lot of times I think it's just an act of ego where it's just like, you know, the secrets and other people don't. And it makes you feel really good to be a to be a tipster, to be a leaker. And no, you know, yeah, knowing isn't enough for those people. They want to share it with the world. Like the act of knowing a secret is fun, but the act of sharing a secret with someone else makes you feel special. Yep. So I think those are very different motivations than this, which is it is an act of defiance. This just reads to me as an employee who is saying, um, you know, you're going to treat us like potential uh, criminals, basically, and uh, they're offended by that. And so they're going to, I'm going to show you. How do you like it? And that that's what's going on here, I think. Yeah, they talk about it in the article that apparently in the presentation um, it is discussed that that Apple is well aware that the majority of leaking doesn't come from a malicious place when it comes from Cupertino. It's like people that are excited about the thing that they're working on in a lot of cases and want to share it. And that's where problems can start to, to pop up. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I suppose that is true. I'm not entirely sure that the leaks in Cupertino are happening. I think the people who are truly excited about what they're working on and want to share it with people they know because they're super excited, I would imagine that the corporate culture has done a pretty decent job of having them realize you don't do that, right? But maybe well, maybe, maybe some of it is that. There is a statistic that came out in this thing, which I really struggle to believe, but I do, because why would they say it in this internal meeting that as of last year, there are now more breaches that come from inside Apple's campus than there are that come from the supply chain. I can't get my head around this. Yeah. I, I kind of don't believe it, but why would they lie about it? It just seems like a weird thing to, to say, you know, they're not saying it, it publicly. It's something, it's something to scare employees about and it depends on how you count. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. they may be counting instances that are, that are uh, you know multiple instances uh, by the same person. They're they're who knows or maybe maybe they're right. It doesn't seem right to me, but maybe they're right. It certainly is a number that serves their purpose in scaring their employees. And, and because here's the thing, um, this sort of presentation serves two purposes, right? One, on one level, it's a corporate reminder of secrecy is our value is part of our corporate values. We want to keep these things secret until they're released. They've restated the thing that I've heard other people say, which is, you know, it makes your coworkers sad when you you steal their thunder. So they're trying to get it's the appeal to um, your friends and colleagues at the company. Um, so that's that's fine. I, I get it. Like you trying to remind everybody what the ground rules are and why we keep things secret at Apple and all of that. I get it. But the other part of this presentation is fear, right? The other part of this presentation is to take your employees and say, we're watching you and you will get fired if you release information. And that, you know, that's just a fact that's part of what is going on here and i can see why people would take take umbrage at that i i again i feel like ultimately the motivation for people to leak is because they have something that no other people you know nobody else knows and they just they they gotta let it out because it's just too good um but i i am really skeptical about how many of these rumors are coming from somebody telling a friend a hint of what they're working on versus somebody you know basically emailing a reporter and saying i have a leak for you because they want to know they you know they want to see that story and know that they were the source of the leak yeah either or i mean it's still information getting out that i don't want to get out because i imagine that like you know a lot of these conversations they go to reporters right like they might not necessarily be someone 
writing a cold leak, but like two people in a bar, one of them's in the press, one of them works for Apple, they're having a chat. And then, yeah. you know, information. So like I was thinking, right, like what we consider leaks and how they're classified. Because I, I'm very aware that there are lots of people in the media that get tips that don't report them as such, but will speak about the thing that they're aware of. And I sure. wonder if Apple is aware, like they list, they hear these things or they read these things and they're like, the only way you know that is someone told you, right? And where it's maybe not being reported as a, here is something from Ming-Chi Kuo, spoke to the supply chain. But like they're still, right. they're still aware that there's like this stuff is getting out there, even if it's being reported differently. That was something that I was wondering about when trying to think, how are they coming to this conclusion that there is more stuff coming from inside of Apple? But some of the specifics around this so and, and how things have changed over time are really interesting. So the presentation spoke about Apple hiring investigators all over the world who are tasked with preventing information from reaching competitors, counterfeiters, and of course the press. They hunt down leaks if and when they do appear to stop them. And a number of these investigators have previously worked at agencies like the NSA, the FBI, and the Secret Service, hmm. which is pretty intense so they've all got like the dark jackets and uh dark suits and sunglasses right they're that's I, who I this think is they gotta, right i mean yeah what else what else would they mm -hmm. would they dress like you know like they've all got earpieces yeah apple security mm -hmm. that's how it works yeah and one interesting tidbit that came out which i think might have been part of the reason why this whole double down on secrecy and this team was set up is they tell a story about how enclosures of phones leak so like from the supply chain these like the physical bodies of the devices and they get out into the world right so people can can buy them and so that they're like coming out of the factory they're being stolen from the factories and before the iphone 5c was was announced in 2013 apple had to purchase back 19,000 of these enclosures that had gotten out of the factory <laughs> to stop the world from getting them and then between announce and the phone being released they bought another 11,000 of them so this is like to keep these away from the web effectively so they don't want the pictures getting out so these they, they, these things are being stolen they're being smuggled like it talks about some of the ways that people try and get them out of the factories but Apple buys them back <laughs> if they find them and then Tim Cook did this double down on secrecy thing so in 2016, only four enclosures were stolen out of 65 million devices being produced. That is a significant difference. It's clear that Apple has gone to its partners in the supply chain and has instituted a whole bunch of policies in mm -hmm. terms of searching um, and having security on site, searching employees, having security on site, and... Um, that's yeah it seems and it seems to be working at least to a, a certain degree it's hard to do this because there are so many different places where the parts are feeding through in apple supply chain that it, it can be a challenge to do this but they you know they, they spend a lot of money on the factories they can spend a little bit more money on more security and so that's an interesting interesting to see that that's something that that's going on here is yeah. uh is is in trying to plug the leaks in the in the supply chain and and I mean to be to be clear this is this is something that um, 
a lot of the leaks in the supply chain, my understanding is have a, a couple of sources. And one of them is there are there are people who are running their businesses and Apple is not their only client. And there is some horse trading of information that goes on among suppliers. And that's one way information gets out. And the other is that you've got people who are um, oftentimes quite poorly uh, paid, poorly compensated for their work. And they get offered a shocking amount of money given what their wages are to spirit away apart from an Apple product line. And it's very hard for those people to say no. And there are a few ways that Apple can approach that, right? Apple can approach that by fixing, uh, you know, the, the however method they're using to spirit away the, 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 the case. Uh, they could also make it maybe a little less worth it by paying them better. And hopefully they're doing both of those things. Yeah, apparently there have been stories um, of people being offered somewhere between three to 12 months of their salary in exchange for getting a part yeah, out of the factory. Yep. So, but the thing is, these these workers are paid about $350 a month, like what is the equivalent. Now, I don't know if that's good or bad. It sounds bad to me. I assume it's not amazing. But like in perspective, I don't know. I, I I haven't been able to do enough research, honestly, to know how competitive Apple are now. I assume that they're better than they used to be or better than most people. Or maybe we'd hear about it more. Maybe it's just one of these things that now nobody talks about. But it doesn't seem like a lot of money, um, really. But again, I, I don't know what, the, what that would get you um, in these places in China. But you can see why if you're offered a year's worth of salary to sneak a piece of metal out of a building, how enticing that would be. But now yeah. Apple is screening like the TSA. I think it said that like in their factories, they're screening more people than the TSA does, like on the whole. On the whole. <laughs> because, and I don't know, there, there's something about all of this which is a little uncomfortable, I think, in places. Like, one, that this presentation is existing, and then two, when you start thinking about what happens in the supply chain, it, it feels a little uncomfortable to me. And I don't really know how I feel about it. Like, is all this worth this? I don't know. Like, I, I know that the... Like, it's also heavy, right? Like, I understand the the surprise and delight thing. And I know that because of the way that Apple is secretive, it's what gives me a newer job, right? Like the way that they protect their products builds intrigue and makes yes. it interesting for people to listen to. So like, I obviously, you know, I appreciate it from that perspective, but I see things like this and I'm like, wow, it's a lot of effort. But if that's what makes you the biggest company in the world, you know, of course this is what you focus on. But at the same time, it's like, Boy, I really hope you're doing this ethically and correctly and right for the people that are being impacted. Yeah, it's um, I don't know. It's one of those things where it's hard to imagine Apple just saying, "Oh, whatever." Like every corporation has secrets and things that it wants to maintain internally, and they have sometimes good reasons for that. Sometimes not as good reason. It's hard to imagine Apple giving up on secrecy mm -hmm. and just letting everybody like let it fly. You know, a cup. A company wants to be able to tell its story, and I I, uh, I understand that. But um, it you you do end up in these uncomfortable situations where you've got um, 
employees who expect a level of trust, and yet you've also got evidence that some employees cannot be trusted. Yep. Yep. And so what do you do? And it's a difficult situation at that point, because if you're somebody who would never leak and you are forced to sit through a security thing, right, I can understand the righteous indignation of like, why am I being treated as a as a potential leaker here, even though there's evidence that some of your colleagues are absolutely leakers, which is why which is why I think it's interesting more from an Apple standpoint than from an external standpoint. We um you know, because as a, as a journalist, I kind of don't really care about, like, um, the argument that we don't want to... Please don't report this fact about Apple because it would make some people sad, right? It's like, well, that's too bad. But internally, the argument that it makes... You, what you're doing is you're, you're running down your coworkers' efforts and all their hard work by leaking... And and that's what you should feel bad about. That's where your guilt should come from. Is that you're? It's not because this company is this big rich company, and you're letting down the company, and the company is important above all. It's you're letting down your friends who work here by leaking the stuff that we're working on. And I could see how that could be effective as as guilt. Um, but but yeah, it's kind of icky too because you know it, it makes everybody feel like a. Um, like they're being surveilled and like they're being um, treated as a suspect, even if they're innocent. It says apparently uh, that these investigations that are carried out inside of Cupertino to weed out the people that are leaking to the press can take up to three years to complete. And they mentioned recently two cases that they've stopped one person who worked in Apple's online store and another person in iTunes and that they are gone. I've heard that um, there have been a couple, maybe it's these two, I don't know, but I've, I've heard sort of through the grapevine that there have been some, you know, a lot of times when somebody gets let go for cause, there's a, um, it, there's like a code of silence, like they just disappear and nobody talks about it. And it's just like, I mean, maybe behind the scenes they talk about it, but like officially the company doesn't talk about it. The company's just like, they're gone. We're not going to talk about it, you know, over and the employees can all talk, but Mm -hmm. the company's not going to say anything about it. And it sounds, these things that I've heard through the grapevine are that Apple did a couple of kind of high profile terminations where they wanted everybody to know that this person was being fired because, you know, they wanted people to see the consequences of being found out as being a leaker, I think is the implication there. Effectively being put in the stocks inside of the the garden, right? Like, you know, everyone gets to come and throw tomatoes at the guy. Or or made an example of, like, you know, security people come to your desk and walk you out and you're never seen again. Mm-hmm. And the word gets around and that, you know, that is maybe effective. But again, it gets back to at that point, you're just trying to strike fear into people. That when I worked in the bank, that's how people were fired. If if you were being fired because you were up to no good, your manager and a manager from another branch would come in to the office and they would do it in front of people. They would come into the office, they would stand in the room that you're in, they'd make you shut down, and they would walk you out of the building for this exact reason. That's why it was the policy, because you're supposed to discourage people stealing money. So when you would fire yeah. someone, you would embarrass them. So it was a way to show everybody else, please do not do this because you don't want to be that person. 
And the downside there is that you're creating potentially an environment that is full of fear. And do you want a paranoid, fearful environment? Is that the best work environment? At the same time, you also don't want people stealing money from the bank, right? Yep. So that's the, it's a, it's a challenge. Um, there are, you know, I've also heard through the grapevine that there some of some of the leak sources may have been a little less intentional. That, that rather than, um, you know, I've I've heard that there is some like shared information. We talk about like these message boards and things like that that Tim Cook po- posts to, and their mailing lists internally at Apple and things like that. I have heard too that there are some places where um, more sensitive information used to get discussed. And the the uh, discussion groups were wider, maybe than they needed to be, and that's like a almost like an IT issue where like people who didn't really need to know got to see it, and then those people who weren't really directly involved are like, oh, did you know that this is going on? And that some of the sources of of the leaks may have been indirect and closed, solved by closing down or. Um, dramatically reducing the amount of data that is shared mm-hmm. um on you know in email or message boards or whatever internally um if at all so i it, it sounds like that that's been some of the doubling down on secrecy has been sort of compartmentalizing a little more at apple and doing a little less kind of uh uh easygoing kind of oversharing of what's going on so i don't know it's tough it's tough problem right because i I, there's so many different paths that information can take and you know companies would like you know believe me uh, i've experienced this i'm sure you experienced this companies would like to control all information that their employees receive about what's going on at the company but the fact is employees are full of people and they talk the employees are people they talk uh, businesses are full of them, and uh, companies can't control it. No. So even though they want to, they can't. Even if you institute red zones, which are hallways and public areas, <laughs> as is described at Cupertino, do not talk yes, in the red speak. zones. But yeah, this was just, I, I encourage people, there's way more than we're going to get to today in this piece. There's just all these really interesting tidbits that are inside of here that I recommend people go and read this article. It's, it's really well written. Um, I haven't, funnily enough, actually listened to the audio version. I just read the article. Um, so maybe I'll have to do that too now because I made a little podcast out of it. So it's probably worth mm-hmm. checking out as well. So go check it, go look at it. There's, there's more stuff in there than, than we've gotten to today, but there'll be links in the show notes if you want to go and check it out for yourself. Today's show is also brought to you by Encapsula, the multifunction content delivery network that boosts the performance of your website, protects it from denial of service attacks, and secures it from bad guys whilst ensuring high availability. Websites of all sizes can be focused to be attacked. It happens every day. It is a, it is a thing that is prevalent on the internet. Criminals use giant botnets to scrape website content. They might try and break into databases or even try and bring down sites with denial of service attacks. If this type of stuff happens to you, you want to have an infrastructure there that can handle it. An encapsula, boy, they got it. Their network holds 3 terabits per second of on-demand scrubbing capacity, which can process 30 billion attacks per second. Whether you know what this is or not, it doesn't matter. Just understand that encapsula can take care of it. And they've done this for some of the largest website attacks on record. They have made sure that things run. People coming to your website wouldn't even know that something was happening because of Encapsula's powerful CDN that's delivering your your customers the content that they want quickly. And if anything bad is happening, you can see it 
happening just on the Encapsula dashboard. You can adjust security policies on the fly, and you can stay in control of your website. As a listener of this show, you can get one whole month of service for free. Just go to Encapsula.com slash upgrade. That's I-N-C-A-P-S-U-L-A dot com slash upgrade. You can find out more about their service and claim your free month. Thank you so much to Encapsula for their support of this show and Relay FM. So this week, later on this week, uh, marks the 10th anniversary of the official release of the iPhone in North America. So, uh, you know, earlier on this year, we were talking about the 10th anniversary of the debut. And now we are at the 10th anniversary of people actually getting them in their hands. And there have been uh, a couple of interesting stories popping up over the last couple of weeks um, and there are two, notably, that I want to talk about today. Um, one is an event that was held at the Computer History Museum in California. I, don't, I really wished that this would have lined up with when we were all in uh, San Jose, but hey-ho. Um, and another is a Wall Street Journal kind of mini documentary. One of the reasons I find both of these so interesting is they they usher in the return of an old friend, Scott Forstall. He's back, <laughs> baby. How interesting to see him appear. He's back. He's back, and somebody pointed out he's back in the same shirt he wore on stage a few years ago. Yep. In the uh, actually in the presentation, uh, the the Computer History Museum, the the presenter remarks on the fact that he wore it at WWDC in 2012, and Forstall gives the uh, the Jobs line of like, if I find something I like, I buy ten of them. <laughs> Amazing. So. I recommend that people go and consume both of these things. There is a there is a video on Facebook um, of the Computer History Museum talk, and there is a video um, on Wall Street Journal that they did. Right, so you can go and uh, you can go and check those out. But I wanted to talk about Scott Forstall a little bit because I'm assuming his NDA is up now because we haven't heard from him since he left Apple, was it five or six years ago? Something like that, with with the uh, the, the Maps thing. He's not said a word. And he popped up a little while ago uh, when he was becoming a Broadway producer, um, funding Broadway shows. And he talks about that, which is re- actually really nice. The, the opening segment uh, for him with the Computer History Museum piece is, is really interesting. He's kind of just talking about his life, telling some stories about him as a person. And you, and it seems that he's really found a passion of his with these Broadway shows, but we yeah. haven't heard anything from him in regards to technology at all. But here he is. It's five years. I wonder if he had a five-year thing or if he just decided he would stay silent and, and not talk. And this is a good opportunity with the... Uh... With the iPhone anniversary, he's obviously a main, one of the main participants who's left, like him and Tony Fidel, and there 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 are some, but there are a lot of them who are still involved and still mm-hmm. at Apple and can't really talk about it. So um, I do wonder because it has been five years since, uh, or or coming up five. It's not quite five yet. I think it's five years in in September when he left. But we're I guess it's safe to assume that if there was a a clause which he couldn't speak. You would assume that's up, right? The guy's not going to... Well, he's talking about what they were doing at Apple, right? So, yeah. I, and I don't know whether there's a don't talk about it kind of thing um, that it was in his deal or not or what the... You know, because sometimes sometimes what you end up with is a 
don't talk about the trade secrets. Sometimes you end up about a don't disparage the company for some period of time. There are different deals, right? So maybe maybe so, but he's talking now. So, But, you know, I wouldn't put it past him that he just didn't feel like talking like he he didn't talk for a while and then everybody was like oh forstall's not talking and then when his contract was up like nobody asked him and he was like all right um but yeah he's 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 saying stuff now and i i would say one of the things that struck me about his participation at the computer history museum is that he was given some opportunities to throw bombs at apple and didn't he does not appear in any way to be bitter well, or if he is, he's not going to, like, uh, yeah, it, it certainly comes across that he's kind of, like, moved on with his life and doesn't, you know, he's not he's not there to be catty and angry and um, and that's uh, that's that's good. I get I get the sense that Tony Fidel is a lot more bitter <laughs> than Scott Forrestal is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it because, it, you know, there's, there's a couple of instances where the presenter who really sounded to me like John Gruber and it was like freaking me out every now and then and I remember that it wasn't him uh, John Markoff is the John Markoff yeah he was the writer at the New York Times tech writer for many many years so he had some beat at the New excellent York Times. questions and like you know some of them like you know he's asking I think really valid questions like you know you when you look at the phone now do you see anything in there that annoys you and he's like of course I'm a designer everybody does this he says, like, and I like that he said that there were things that I was using when I was there that I wasn't happy with that I had done. Like, this is just the mark. This is just like the the what happens in a designer's mind. So, so stuff like that that we're talking about, where like he has a real easy shot to be like, I hate this non-skeuomorphic design, right? Because <laughs> they bring that up as well. But he doesn't. He's like, this is just the way that things are. There, there wasn't like. And I wasn't expecting this, like a ton of scoops in this, right? Like, whoa, things we never knew before. But there are like little details and stories that haven't been told that he can tell. You know, like one of them, I didn't know this. The original multi-touch demo was a table-sized display that was used as a projector to control a Mac. That was the original technology. That's what it was doing. And this was what they were trying to turn into a tablet. And then the story that everybody knows, then the tablet project was turned into the phone. But yeah. even the idea that this whole multi-touch thing and the tablet project began because Steve hated a guy at Microsoft, which is hilarious. <laughs> he had a personal vendetta against this person that was a mutual friend who was working on some tablet project at Microsoft. And he was like, no, I hate this guy. We're going to do one. <laughs> and I love that as a reason to create, <laughs> to, to, to start the wheels in motion, to create probably the most sex successful and influential computer product of all time, the iPhone, came from a personal vendetta that Steve had with a guy at Microsoft, which is amazing. Like, I really recommend that people watch or listen or however you want to consume this thing, because there's great stories in here. Like, there's a story where he talks about the first um, demo that they gave to Singular, AT&T. And just the story of Steve and Scott going and doing this. And it did strike me at this point that there are books, right? And there are folklore stories about all of these products. But not a lot of them include Forstall. And if I was him, I would want some of these out in the world. So that yeah. when people think about the iPhone, they remember how incredibly influential he was to the project and that now it's the 10th anniversary maybe it's time to share some of those details and something that i found striking between 
both the Computer History Museum talk and the Wall Street Journal documentary. He's talking this, about the same stories in both of these. So, like, what if you've watched one, you will have heard in the other one where he talks about something else, but it's the same thing. You know, like, he talks about the same types of things. And I wonder if, you know, and I mean, I don't know. I don't know the guy. I don't, I don't know how he feels about this, but he deserves to have his place in history when it comes to talking about the iPhone. But there hasn't been a lot of him in those stories, like these folklore stories. Yeah, it's um, funny. I was thinking about this because we have we have some stories about the we have lots of stories about the original Mac. We have some stories about the iPod. There, there is a an amount of time that has to pass where the act of creation of these influential products goes from being a trade secret to being history and not not worth not relevant in terms of the current state of the art, but in, incredibly relevant in terms of the cultural and historical value. Yep. And the challenges that we're talking, I mean, this is actually a perfect connection to our previous topic that you've got a company where secrecy is everything. Everything is siloed. Everything is kept secret. And that's, we could say that's fine for building that product but what does it mean in terms of our understanding of how that product came to be built? You have to end up relying on the stories told by the people who were there years after they left, because that's the only that's the only way to do it. It's unlikely that Apple is going to, you know, retain and declassify all of the emails <laughs> and whatever else. Right? That's uh -huh. not going to happen. It's no. going to end up being personal recollections that are going to be how the iPhone, which is an incredibly influential product in the history of technology, and maybe even in the history of the world, how it came to be. And this is what's interesting about this is this is kind of the start of it. Um, there have been some stories in the past, but like, it will take some time. And the stories are going to get way more interesting when it's Phil Schiller talking about his time at Apple when he leaves Apple, if he ever just decides to do that, right, to, to leave and to talk about it. When Tim Cook is reflective in his retirement about it, like Johnny's memoir, right? <laughs> Johnny's memoir. It's going to be uh, it's going to be the most beautiful book ever published. No one will be able to afford it, but it will be really great information. <laughs> No, it will be on the highest quality paper and it will be, yes, indeed. So all of that will change our uh, our opinions, but we're, we're in the early days of it now. I think it's great that there is a computer history museum. I think this is important, but it is, it is this funny case of having to um, start lifting the veil on stuff that was secret only by sort of waiting for people to pass outside of the zone of secrecy and then be able to talk about it. So it's a, it's, it's fun to hear these stories. Um, the nice thing about the early versions of these histories is that the, the time is so recent, you know, it's only 10 years that it yeah. feels a little bit, uh, like, uh, a little bit more current and, and, you know, even if there are, there's a better, clearer picture done 10 years from now or 15 years from now, um, it won't seem as immediate then. It'll seem like ancient history. Like I wrote, I wrote a 20th anniversary of the Mac story and a 25th anniversary of the Mac story. And th those, you know, it was ancient history by then. And this is 10 years of the iPhone. It, it doesn't feel like ancient history. It feels almost like yesterday. It's been really interesting to hear from Scott. I miss him <laughs> now when I hear him. Like he was such a great storyteller and he really 
he's still continuing to talk about the product with such passion. Would Would you say he's a blowaway storyteller, Mike? He was blowaway. <laughs> uh, you know what? I think <laughs> it's funny, like hearing from him now, like just how things change over time. Like I think that there has been a vilification of Scott Forstall in a lot of ways sure. since he left Apple. You know, because Maps was such a debacle, and then people got tired of the design that he was spearheading, and it was like it all got pinned on him, as if like he, if he never left, we would still have felt on our iPhones, which I don't think is true. But like there is, there was this whole like this all this stuff was pinned to Forstall, and because he could never defend himself, it kind of stayed that way. And it's when I when I hear him now again talking and presenting, I'm reminded about how great he was in the world world that we saw him in, right? Like again, mm-hmm. I don't know what he was like behind the scenes. I have no idea, but it's interesting to to see him again back in the the, the role that I know him, and remember how much I liked him when he was on stage. You know, like the affection that we have for Federighi now. We had for Forstall then. I don't know if that's entirely true. I think I think Federighi is much more of a folk hero. Well, so to in, nerds in, in a different because way because he is a giant nerd in, in a different and Forstall, way. But Forstall was the embodiment of uh, you know of iOS for a long time, mm-hmm. and uh, he fulfilled that role. And he, you're right. There is a simplification that happens because he got he left the company and uh, there were major changes and uh, you know he became a representative of those changes and 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 yeah he absolutely became uh, a character in the story i was thinking he's a little bit like a character who got written out of a tv show and uh then he yeah. returns for like the reunion episode and you're like <laughs> oh yeah i love right, that guy. i remember him <laughs> yeah exactly right so the wall street journal brought together 3 uh, former Apple vice presidents or executives. So they brought Scott Forstall, Tony Fidel, and Greg Christie together to create a 10-minute video documentary on how the iPhone was born. And again, we've heard some of these stuff but in, a diff- you know, in different ways before. And it is really weird to me now to imagine how much time Apple clearly put into trying to create an actual telephone by using the interface yeah. of the iPod. Like, this started off as, we want to create something that makes calls like that was the project yeah it was an ipod phone ipod phone is what the original idea was is what if we took the ipod is going to get cannibalized by phones because there are all these phones that are adding mp3 player features so what if we make the ipod use our use leverage our power in this market because everybody loves their ipod to make an ipod phone that was absolutely the original conception here and it's mind-boggling to think of today that that might have been what it was going to be Right. It's the faster horse thing, right? I mean, it's literally, it is, that is the thing, is what if we just take an iPod and evolve it a little bit so it can make calls? And the funny thing is, what worked so great for the iPod, which is the click wheel interface that every iPod had, was actually one of the things that prevented the existence of an iPod phone, because it, you, you ended up with like an old dial phone or something. Like, you couldn't pick numbers and stuff with the iPod interface. It was really bad. You would have to sync with a contact list, but how do you dial a number that is not in your contact list with this? Is you're, you're spinning around and picking numbers, and how do you send a text message? It's like you're spinning around to pick text. It's like it was really bad. Uh-huh. Like Everything that was good about the iPod was, was failed you when you needed to be this, and I, I, that seems to be where they ran aground. Even Tony Fidel said like it was very clear to them that there was no way that interface was actually going to be usable on a phone. So, But that's where they started from. 
and then there came this other path, which was, what if we use the underpinnings of OS X? What if instead of building up from the iPod, we build out from the Mac or down from the Mac to make yep. a device? And that was that was the answer, and that was that that um, moment of revelation where where they went and made made a product that was for the future instead of a a, a slight life extension on the iPod. There was a point uh, apparently in the creation of the software in which Steve Jobs, who was unhappy with how the project was progressing, gave Forstall and Christie an ultimatum to either have something good to show to him in two weeks or it goes to another team. Now, I don't know, I, I, I can only assume this is hyperbole, but Forstall said that it led to the team putting in 168 hours a week for two weeks. That's 24 hours a day. That's all the hours, yeah. That can't be, that can't be possible, right? I I I would be I think what that means is that um basically everybody was said every waking hour has to be here um and probably people slept and showered maybe but that at was apple it. or yeah. or they or they went home and slept and showered and then came right back but and and they were probably always people there all the time yeah, well they did say that Christy uh was getting hotel rooms for people across the street yeah, so they could just yeah. go backwards and forwards. So yeah, I assume that what it meant was they weren't working for 168 hours a week, but for those 168 hours when they were awake, they were. Every waking hour. Yeah, I think so, for two weeks. Which, you know, on a big, pro- big important project, um, a-, a-, a burst like that is not unreasonable. I think the-, the-, the problem that I've got with a lot of the Silicon Valley culture is when you're expected to spend all of your personal time at your at your job all the time forever. But this is one of those kind of legendary moments of mm-hmm. everybody put it in high gear for two weeks and this is all they did. And this is what they got was, you know, what, what they had to show Steve Jobs in two weeks. And then again, another story I liked from this is that in late 2006, the end is in sight for iPhone OS. But the keyboard apparently was terrible. Like, you would give up trying to write an email on it, Forstall says. So he froze development on every other part of the OS, and everybody was focused on building a better keyboard, like he gave a timeline of a week or whatever. And then people would come in and present their keyboards. And then one engineer created the predictive keyboard. The idea that the keys, the actual, like, the the touch targets for the keys are changing as we're typing, but you don't see it. It visually stays the same, but using algorithms and predictive technology, the key areas change. So it's predicting Mm -hmm. what letters you want to type next, and as long as you hit somewhere near them, it's like, oh, yeah, we know what you want. And then somebody created that, and they were able to ship with that. Um, I found that really, really interesting. And like, I love the idea of him being like, nope, everyone stop what you're doing. This thing is terrible. They, well, they were terrified of it. That was the, um, they made this decision to go with the all touchscreen interface and the keyboard became this kind of terrifying thing. Because if you think back to then, like their competitors all had physical keyboards, like BlackBerry was the king. They ruled with their physical keyboard. The Palm Trio had a physical keyboard, little chiclet buttons. Mm -hmm. So they were making this opinionated product, which is great. It's like, nope, we want to use that screen space. We don't want to put a keyboard down there. But then how do you get text input to not be terrible? And that, yeah, that was really scary. And I I do remember when they rolled it out that that was one of the things that they were very proud of in talking to the press was that the keyboard actually... um, is making guesses 
about what letters you're going to be pressing, even retroactively, I believe, where it'll it'll see what word you're spelling and it's a misspelled word and it looks back to where you hit that letter and goes, oh, you probably meant this other letter, which is a word. And then that's how autocorrect will behave, or at least I think it still behaves that way. And that's just very clever stuff. And that was that was a, a good breakthrough for them. Because if that keyboard was unusable, that would be the end of the product. Like that, the jig would be up. And it, although we can still debate software keyboards and how easy they are to use and how frustrating it can be, um, they, they were good enough to push the phone market over the edge and it, it will never come back. And then to tie these two topics together, like to relate it back to the secrecy thing, they were talking about, so Greg Christie, who was uh, in the, the team, they were creating the, the iPhone OS, right? Him and Forstall were talking about the fact, and Fidel actually, the three of them, because they're kind of across the whole project, are talking about the fact that the hardware and software teams did not see what the other team was working on and said that like while this was tricky, it worked because nobody knew what the iPhone was going to look like before it shipped. And so like it's like they they knew at the time this was going to be a difficult thing to try and do, right? Like this was tricky, this was hard. Like you have to make the thing with having very little information about what the other team's working on, but it meant that they were able to keep it super locked down and it didn't get out. Yeah, it's true. And uh, in the end, they knew that the screen was going to be this size and multi-touch and that they were having these buttons. That's all they needed, right? Clearly. Right, like yeah. whether it would have been better or worse or whatever, if they would have known, what we know is we had a fantastic product, right? Like they were mm-hmm. able clearly to find a way to make that work for them. But yeah, I mean, this ten years of the iPhone thing, it's it's kind of wild for me because this is the first one of the big Apple products that you know I was around for and interested in when it was created. You know, like this is this is my history now. You know, like the Mac was a thing before me. Um, and before I was interested in these types of things. But the iPhone, you know, I remember, I have vivid memories of watching the first keynote. Like, I remember where I was. I remember what yeah. was going on when I saw it because it was such a groundbreaking moment for me. And, you know, I know I watched that video like 10 times and, you know, like I, all of that stuff. This is my history now. And, and that's, it's really exciting. I remember where I was too, Mike. Don't do it, Jason. I don't want to talk to you about this. <laughs> no, I was, I was, uh, I was at MacWorld Expo watching Steve Jobs unveil the iPhone. That's where I was. <laughs> I'm sure you were. Uh, but no, it's it, it is something to to have a a milestone that you actually remember that that totally changes it. I re- that's part of growing up and getting older is that you start. Everybody tells you about history and history things. History was ha- thing, things that happened before you were alive or that you didn't pay attention to, right? And then all of a sudden, something is kind of historic, and you're like, oh, yeah, I actually was there for that and remember it. And then that's like a really different experience, and, and that's where you are. In fact, did, when, when did the prompt do its episode about the iPhone oh, keynote? I, you I, know? Su- I assume it was, it was five years it, ago, but I can find it. I, can I mean, were you guys you. doing the prompt five years ago? I think we were, yeah. Wow. How about that? 
Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. We started uh, we started the prompt in 2013, so not five years ago, but but yeah, okay. many years. So it was probably like the seventh anniversary of the eighth, seventh anniversary, maybe three years mm-hmm. ago, four years mm-hmm. ago, something like that. And uh, that's a good episode, by the way. People could listen to that. January 9th, 2014. So it was, it was three years ago. Imagine an episode of The Incomparable, except instead of talking about a movie or a TV show, talk about a keynote. That's what that episode of The Prompt is. It's great. It's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I've been, because this is the product release, right? Because there was six months between announcement and release. I've been thinking back to my, um, my original review of this, which is still online at Macworld. And it's, uh, the funny thing about it was that I had to review it at camp because we were going to a summer camp up in the mountains, um, with my family. And so, uh, we literally like got the iPhone and then the next day I went to the camp. And so I actually wrote the article in a tent and had to drive about a half an hour down the mountainside to get signal so that I could email it to the office to post. It got four out of five. It got four mice. Four mice. Yeah. It had some issues, but it was pretty great for a first attempt. It was, uh, well, you know, thinking back to it now, it was the thing that I thought most notable about that product was that it was really good at everything it tried to do. Yeah. And this is a, it's gone on to be kind of a hallmark of Apple at points. And I think when we criticize Apple, sometimes this is the thing that we criticize about Apple is there are two ways to make a product. Okay, they're not, it's a spectrum, but at one end is it doesn't do everything, but everything it does, it does well. And at the other end is, what doesn't it do? None of them are pretty good, right? They're all just kind of mediocre, but it does lots of things. And in my mind, the quintessential Apple product is a product that does a limited number of things very well. It's a targeted, very specific thing. And with the development of the iPhone, there was obviously an incredible amount of discipline for them to say, if we can't do it well, we're just not going to try. We'll polish the hell out of the things that are good and everything else we're just going to punt and say nope we don't do that like text uh or mms like uh photos via text message nope we're just not going to do that Mm -hmm. it's just not there third-party apps how about the web the web is good use the web we're not going to do that uh and so that's what the iphone is it does what it the original iphone does what it does and that's all it does and it was very good at that so that was my that was my take on it, but it was funny to to use a uh, a uh, a phone that uh, like I had to drive not just to turn in the story. I had to drive to like use the phone because there was no service at the camp, <laughs> so I had to make calls and stuff. I'm like, hey, I'm on the iPhone. And the other thing is, where did that iPhone come from? There were those long lines, and and uh, there was no review program for iPhone beyond your you know Walt Mossberg, David Pogue kind of contingent of 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 highest level friends of Steve Jobs, basically people Steve Jobs trusted. Um, and so, uh, we had to wait, we had to get people to wait in line. So we had a bunch of people waiting in lines, iPhone lines to buy an iPhone. So I would have one to review. And that's my other story here. I hope that he tells it at some point this week, but Brian X Chen tech reporter for the New York times was one of our junior editors then. And I believe we had him wait in an iPhone line all day. No. <laughs> and he wrote he wrote stories about the iPhone line. We did coverage about the iPhone lines, but ultimately he brought back an iPhone 
which I then took and reviewed. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. And, and yes, I should have told that story without the name. And that writer grew up to be Brian Chen of the New York Times. But yeah, those were, uh, it's, it's funny. That's 10 years ago now. It's kind of hard to believe. But it was a big deal. Everybody was really curious about it. I mean, that's the other thing I remember is having it at camp. So I had it around like all these people like just kind of random regular uc berkeley graduates basically people just parents and their kids and stuff and everybody like that six months had built the hype so much everybody wanted to see it and see what it was like because it was like it was unlike anything they'd ever experienced a lot of those people had blackberries and things like that or they just had little candy bar phones and then they saw this thing with a bright color screen and it was not retina by any stretch of the imagination but still way higher resolution than a computer screen in terms of the pixel density looked great and that multi-touch interface is like nothing that almost anybody had ever seen before because we'd all been using like little capacitive touch things with a stylus and so it was uh it did it blew people away i remember that pinch to zoom wasn't a thing right like no all of this stuff was new yeah so uh happy birthday iphone yeah happy birthday 10 10 Today's episode of Upgrade is also brought to you by PDF Pen from Smile. PDF Pen equips you with everything that you need for powerful PDF editing. And now the new PDF Pen 9 is available and is the ultimate tool for editing PDFs on your Mac. You can upgrade today to go totally paperless and enjoy over 100 enhancements to improve your PDF editing workflow like for example accessing annotations and content of those in the sidebar and you can also copy this annotation content as text so you can take it out to other applications so you can now add notes comments and cloud annotations to your pdf documents you can even fill out and sign interactive pdf forms you can find and highlight every instance of a word just a couple of clicks which is incredibly useful along with being able to remove ocr text layers create links to other pdf files and with pdf pen pro 9 you can add table of contents editing or even ocr for chinese japanese and korean which i'm sure if you need it is, is incredibly useful i use pdf pen all the time for documents and contracts and for redacting stuff it is super useful it is one of the applications that I probably use the most to get my work done on all of my devices, from my iPhone to my iPad to my Mac. I probably use it on my iPad the most, but when I'm sitting down at the Mac, there's no other application that I'm going to open other than PDF Pen to do my PDF-related activities. You can get everything you need for more powerful PDF editing by going to smilesoftware.com slash upgradefm. That's smilesoftware.com slash upgradefm. Thank you so much to PDF Pen from Smile for their support of this show jason it is time for hashtag ask upgrade rajiv would like to know what are the chances that there'll be a new apple tv with 4k released this year and rajiv would love to have amazon video and netflix 4k content available in his apple tv jason do you think we're going to see this yeah i i would probably put um would I put money on it? I don't know. I think it's a better than 50% chance. I think the challenge is not doing it, um, but like technically in the box, but what the content is. There's limited 4K content available like via Netflix and Amazon. Uh, but if you're Apple, you want to have 4K content on iTunes when you roll this out. And is that available? Is is there a, enough? I mean, if I look at Amazon's catalog and Netflix Netflix's catalog, there's not a lot of 4K 
content. There's some, but there's not a lot. So if Apple's going to do it, other than to check a box and be like, yes, we're you know thinking about the future and we are supporting 4K for TVs that, that, that have it, the, if you've got a 4K TV, hooray. But you know, it does make you ask the question, to, okay, you've got a 4K box, what does it do? And if you're Apple and you've got all of your content in in the iTunes store, what you know, what of it are you going to be able to make 4K? And is it enough to go out and say, look, there's a reason why this is good. So I feel like that's the missing piece is you can't, well, they can. Ideally, you wouldn't announce a 4K Apple TV and not announce a pretty decent catalog of content available on iTunes. I think just saying some apps like Netflix and Amazon will support 4K. Yay. And then move on cuz Apple's their own content provider too and they need to they need to be in that business, I think, in order to justify their product having that feature. Do you think it's likely that they would do it even if they didn't have a ton of iTunes stuff just so that they can say that their box has 4K so it stacks up on charts and then they can just have companies like Amazon and, and Netflix put their stuff on. Like, is it worth it for them to to make a 4K Apple TV even if there isn't iTunes content? Like I said, I think it's a lot less worth it. Um, it checks the box, right? It lets them say they've got a 4K device. I just feel like it. it's a... Um, if I was at Apple and we had a 4K Apple TV piece of hardware ready to go, I would... I would really be trying to get the iTunes people to make some deals where some content was going to be available on iTunes in 4K for the first time, uh, you know, for the first time on any platform and try to go out with a, it's a much better story if there's 4 content, 4K content on iTunes, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Much better story. Not impossible without it, but it's a much better story with it. Tangai wants to know, currently in our opinion, what is the best keyboard available for the 10.5 inch iPad Pro? What do you think? Smart keyboard. Yeah, no, that's it. That's it. The best. I mean, it's first right off. If, if it's custom designed for the ten five, it's the only. Mm-hmm. There is there is the Logitech one. By all accounts, it is no good. It's horrific, Jason. I've I bought one and returned <laughs> it. It's I was I've been talking about it on Connected a little bit, but I used it for five minutes and knew I would never want to use it again. It's absolutely. Everything I loved about the Create in the inverse, it's just not a good product. So I would say that right now, the only real option is the the, the smart keyboard, and I'm using it, and mine is it's exactly what I'm expecting it to be because I've used a smart keyboard for nearly two years, right? I've, I've always had at least one of my iPads with a smart keyboard on it, and I'm fine. I actually quite like the keyboard. It's, it does what I need it to do. Um, if you're looking for one right now, go for that. Otherwise, you know, any Bluetooth keyboard will work, right? You, you can get a stand. Um, anything will work. But if you're looking for something that attaches to it and is meant for it and treats it as a package, your only option right now, it really is the smart keyboard that Apple make. And it's good. It's very I think good. So. I think so. Richard wants to know, do you think Apple would ever buy a company like Disney so that they could uh, fill their Apple TV service of exclusive content? No. <laughs> That's my short answer. Disney is a huge company. I don't see it. I don't see them buying Disney. I don't see them buying Netflix. I don't see them buying um, Warner, Time Warner to get HBO. AT&T is trying to buy Time Warner. Do you think this um, is purely just because of the complexity of trying to have a company like that in your portfolio? Look, I, I I think it's a question that a few weeks ago might have been 
um, might have been a better question to ask. Although I think Disney is the wrong. I mean, it's just the, the complexity of a company like that. Does Apple want to own theme parks? No, they don't. I can right? see why if you were asking that question, you would go with Disney because of their incredibly close relationship and the fact that the does the Jobs family still own that as well? Like the Jobs family still owns a big chunk of of Disney. Yeah, um, well, I, I, I don't know if they've divested, but at one point, Steve Jobs was the single biggest shareholder. Not yeah. that he had anything close to a majority, but he, he had, because of the Pixar, the Pixar deal was in stock. But I, I just, in general, um, the question has always been, been buy or build. Uh, a company like Disney is already so diversified that why would Apple want to be in that business? And Apple buys a whole company with ESPN and Disneyland and all of that just to get some you know, video production. Seems like madness to me. So what they did was say, we don't need to buy, we can build. And they hired two incredibly well thought of uh, TV executives and said, and presumably are going to give them a big budget and say, build us a service. And I think they will. And I, I don't think there, I don't think there's a huge barrier there. Honestly, I think if you've got the money like Apple has, you can build something that's like Netflix or HBO or Amazon in a few, in five years. I think you can Amazon prime, um, a video service with good content in it. That's exclusive that people want to pay for. I think you can do that. That's uh, maybe I'm being naive about how the TV industry works, but when I look at it, I feel like this is something that you could solve with money and talent and that it's not one of these things where Netflix has erected a barrier and it's now impossible to make. And in fact, you can buy from those studios. I would imagine that Disney will supply Apple with content for their for their service, right? They don't need to buy Disney. They just need to pay Disney to do what it does well. So I think that's what will happen. Yeah, I assume it, it might be trickier for Apple to try and maybe buy exclusive rights to content and stuff like that with a provider just because of companies are hesitant of Apple because of what they did to the music industry, right? Like, I, th- I feel like that that is still there. I think it's part of the reason why we the Apple TV did not launch with an over-the-top service. Like, I think that that might be part of it, is that Apple believes that it can negotiate the way it wants to negotiate, and companies are hesitant of Apple because they don't want to become the music industry. And I, I think that makes it trickier for them. So maybe it does just make sense, as you say, for them to just... Do what Netflix is doing. Netflix is also struggling to negotiate with some companies. So they're like, screw it. We're going to make our own shows and they're going to be awesome and everybody's going to want them. So we'll, we'll make money that way. Josh asks, does the Files app in iOS 11 allow you to open files other than photos using the USB or SD adapters? So the adapters, the lightning adapters that you can buy. I didn't know the answer to this question. I believed I knew what the answer would be. And then over the weekend, Federico Fittici confirmed it for me. That when you plug in uh, the the adapters to, that would open up files, they still like the camera connection kit, for example, which has USB on it. It still uh, opens the Photos app on iOS 11. Have you done any testing of your own on this, Jason? Yeah, it doesn't do it. That's a real shame. That's a bomb. It is a shame. Um, I think Apple's attitude is probably that everything's wireless, and why would you need a memory card for anything? But it's like, well, why do you have an SD card reader that you sell? Yeah. It's, well, it's for fo- <laughs> it's for photos. It's like, did you know that there are other devices? Did you know you make an iPad Pro, which is a professional? I mean, the the thing that got me, and I actually did ask when I had a briefing about the iPad Pro, is like, this is a product for businesses, right? For business people, for workers. Do you not understand that workers still have like things on? thumb drives and stuff like 
that sometimes you're in a hotel room somewhere getting ready for a presentation and there's a file on a thumb drive and you have that moment where you're like, oh, I have an iPad, so don't give that file to me. Instead, let's find a computer that can read it and then you can email it to me or airdrop it to me and then I'll get it. And it's like, you've got a card reader, you've got a USB adapter. Why not? You've got a file browser. Why don't you let them work together? Like, it does not seem to be a stretch, especially since you're making the iPad Pro. I, I would love to see them do this. There's still time, you know, you know, maybe some point in the future, but like, just realize like, there are these devices. Federico is showing me one, like, that is a lightning thumb drive, right? Like, I would love to be able to use stuff like that without needing this weird app, right? Like, you have that, um, those wireless SD cards and you need to use. Like, because, you know, you want to transfer, but you have to use these weird applications because you can't yeah. get the audio files. The audio files that you need for this very episode, you this cannot just episode. plug them into anything and get it. You have to send it through this weird application instead. Um, it would be great if we could just have this stuff accessible to us. Yes, it's niche case, but the iPad Pro is a niche device. It should be, right? That's what it's, you know, I know more people buy it than kind of maybe how it's intended, which is like an iPad to do work on. People buy them because they just want the newest, the greatest, and the best iPad. But like, understand, you know, people want to use this stuff. They want to get this stuff. You have an app called Files. Come on. Uh, Rajiv is back with another question. Do you think that Apple would produce and release mature rated material through Apple Music or their Apple TV service? And when I heard this question, I was reminded of something that we haven't heard about for a long time, which was um, reported on last year that Dr. Dre was working on a TV show which would be mature. Do you remember this? Yeah. So do you think that Apple, because I mean, Apple in the, in the past have been historically anti-mature, I think, would maybe be a way <laughs> to put it. Do you think that they would themselves make stuff like this? I mean, we, we've heard about this Dr. Dre thing, but we don't really know how it's going to pan out, if at all. But do you think that they would make something like a Game of Thrones? Absolutely. <laughs> you, you don't think that, you think that this just like, well, they're going to make mature TV content because it's what people want? I, yeah, I love I love the questions this week because it's so many of these conventional wisdom things about Apple where I'm just going to go and say, nope, mm-mm. Like, like, are they going to buy Disney? No, they're not. Are they going to be afraid about things with mature content and themes? No, I don't think they are. I don't think you, again, I don't think you hire those development people and say, uh, let's keep it rated PG. I just, I don't think you do. I don't think you build a service. Look at what's on Netflix. Look at what's on HBO. You don't build a service. A- Apple is not building a family video service for family viewing, right? I don't think that's their marketing approach here. I think Apple is going to build a real video service with uh, with a diverse set of programming that is going to be considered sort of premium quality programming. And what what shows are on those services? It's it's Game of Thrones. It's House of Cards. It's Orange is the New Black. It's the Mar- the, like the Marvel. Even the Marvel shows on Netflix are um, way rougher than anything that would be on network TV. And I think that's just that's just where we are. Or in the cinema, yeah. And, and they'll have parental controls and stuff, which they already do. And that's just. I think that's absolutely what they're going to do. And I think this 
perception that Apple is never going to do anything that isn't inoffensive in terms of content. Um, I'll point out that iTunes sells all that stuff and Apple's platforms show it via Netflix and, and, and HBO and things like that. Right. Yep. yep. They're, they're, it's all, it's all there. Um, unless Apple does something completely weird and says, Oh no, our service is going to be the family friendly streaming service, but I just don't see it. I don't think that's how they'll do it. I think they'll have family appropriate stuff and, and more mature content stuff and it'll all be labeled and that's going to be how it is. I, I don't see how you compete in this market. I don't see how you compete with Westworld and game of Thrones and house of cards and do it rated PG. I just know. And finally today, Chris asked, Jason talks about being a freelancer and podcaster, but not about running a large podcast network. Is the incomparable much time and work for Jason? Um, the incomparable is not a large podcast network. <laughs> okay, let's say it's large in the amount of shows and people, which, you know, I know from experience, working with a large group of people can bring with it a lot of work, just inherently in the fact that you have a lot of people to help and manage and, and work with. Well, you know, the the shows that are on the incomparable network that are not mine or that I'm not involved with, it's essentially self-serve. Like... I don't have to work with Joe and Dan on Defocused. They they got it. They do it, and it works fine. I don't have to work with you on the ring post. You've <laughs> I'm got off in it. my own little world, like over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, the incomparable is a hobby. Uh, it does it does bring in a portion of my income income mostly for the main show, um, but it is a small portion. It there is some work there. There's some technical work in terms of getting podcasts up and running. There is also some work in terms of um, we have our membership program. So uh, you know, every quarter, my wife and I have to do some accounting and and bookkeeping and payments to the the hosts for their shows that have been supported by members. But you know, it, it it's not. There are a lot of shows on the network. That's true, but it, it's not something that I tightly manage. I just try to keep the trains running and help where I can and do the, the do the shows that are the shows that I do there. Um, and in most cases, it's a labor of love. Um, the main incomparable show is also something that is that is part of my living, um, but it's not a huge part. And most of the other shows, the membership support essentially, um, or it basically goes to allowing the shows to exist um, and maybe throw a little bit back to the host. But a lot of it is like we can afford to pay somebody to edit the show, which is how the show happens. Like Random Trek is like that. Total Party Kill and Game Show are kind of like that now, too, where, you know, there, there's support there. And the support really goes to the fact that I don't have to edit those shows anymore. <laughs> that we can pay somebody to do it because I don't have the time to do it because I'm out on my own doing my own stuff. So, um, but it's not a it's not a large I would say not a large podcast network in terms of uh, in any term except for maybe how many shows are on it. They are all great shows, though. All the great shows. They're all the great shows. Yeah, I guess it's like it's difficult to to see. I guess from the outside, right? Because I talk about running a podcast network, but Relay FM is more focused as a business. It, it's your job. Yeah. Real FM is your job. And the incomparable, you know, it's not my job. It is 
basically my hobby, or you could say it's a very small sort of side project. In fact, I would argue, and I think I mentioned this on free agents at at one point, I probably spend, if if you calibrated like how many hours you spend and how much money is a result of that, like it would be very clear then the incomparable is a labor labor of love because I do spend more time on it that it probably is justified in terms of what I get paid. But it is yeah. the thing I love to do. I don't have like it is it is kind of my hobby. Like people are like, oh, what hobbies? What do you do when you're not doing podcasts and writing things? And the answer is no, that's like I spend time with my family. <laughs> other podcasts and other writing things. <laughs> and then I do podcasts and and writing. I mean that that's I, I am fortunate to be able to do the things that I like to do and want to do as my job. And so it all just kind of gets intermingled. You're saying like about, you know, Relay FM is my job and the incomparable isn't so much your job. Like, I think Relay FM is more your job than the incomparable is your job, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms, in, in, certainly in terms of how I make my living, it is. <laughs> and, um, and thanks to our sponsors. But, and to our um, listeners. Sponsors and listeners, thank and you. We need you both. Absolutely. Keep coming. Absolutely. All of you. <laughs> well, a lot of, a lot of the incomparable shows have the listener part. They just mm-hmm. don't have the sponsor part. And that's fine. Right. So, uh, but yeah, no, I'd say, I'd say Relay and Six Colors are, are my jobs. And the incomparable is, um, sort of a part-time job and sort of a hobby i don't know if you notice this jason but i i tried to skew the ask upgrades to you this week because i know i yes, t- we, i took them all last week so you can it was asked mike week. last week it was yeah, asked ask jason true. this week tv oh good lots of tv was in there lots of tv that's good if you want to find our show notes, you can go to relay.fm slash upgrade slash 147. Uh, if you'd like to support our sponsors, which, again, we really appreciate when you do, go to uh, check out the great folk over at Encapsula, Smile, and Jamf Now. Uh, if you want to find Jason online, he's over at sixcolors.com, theincomparable.com. He hosts a bunch of shows at relay.fm. And he's on Twitter. He's at jsnell, J-S-N-E-L-L. I am iMike at I-M-Y-K-E. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next time. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snow. Hydrate. Stay out of the sun, everybody. Stay cool. Stay frosty. <laughs>